Good morning, everyone. My name is Corey. I'm a member here. I get to preach today. Today, we're continuing the Sermon on the Mount. To recap, this takes place during a time when crowds have begun to follow Jesus around. He goes up a mountainside and is followed by his disciples, and he starts teaching them. Last week, Jimmy walked us through the Beatitudes, a deeply counterintuitive, countercultural set of expectations for how Jesus' disciples approach the world. That section finishes with Jesus telling them that they will be persecuted, insulted, and slandered, and that they should rejoice when that happens. From there, he begins the words we're going to study today using images of salt and light to describe his disciples. I'm going to pray, and then we'll dig in. Thanks, God, for this time this morning and for your word. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to read it and teach it. And God, I pray that you will put your words in my mouth and your meaning in the hearts and minds of our congregation today. God, will you make your word powerful? Will you remind us of your great love for us and that you are with us? Amen. All right, let's take a look. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So two main images here, salt and light. Now, one way of approaching this passage is to look at the nature of salt and light and from there to speculate about what the disciples of Jesus should be like based on what salt and light are like. These two images are loaded with meaning, so this can be really interesting and has value because I don't think Jesus picked these images at random. But also, fortunately for us, we don't just have to use our imaginations here. Jesus actually tells us what he intends by these metaphors so we can focus on those aspects of salt and light that he focuses on. For that reason, I'm just going to look briefly at these two things and try and highlight a few things that might help us hear them with a similar feel and weight of meaning to the original listeners. So first, salt. Plain old salt is, of course, an atom of sodium bound to an atom of chlorine, but they didn't know that at the time. They knew what it was, though. For a really, really long time, salt has had an important place in human society. It's used as a seasoning for food, of course, where it can have the effect of not only adding its own salty flavor, but bringing out other flavors in the food. Salt also has a habit of sucking up water, which makes it essential as a preservative in foods. The image of salted meat is particularly powerful. For my day job, I run a shop that sells cheese and cured meat. You can walk in and look at our deli case, and there are pieces of meat in there that have been aged for years. Without salt, those hunks of flesh would have rotted long ago, smelling horrible, becoming dangerous for human consumption. But by the magic of salt, pulling moisture out of the meat and creating an inhospitable environment for microbes, 
meat can be kept from rotting and can feed you for years to come. And beyond its physical characteristics, salt has a long history of association with spiritual purity. While preparing this sermon, I came across an ancient Near Eastern hymn written in praise of salt that spoke of salt as a thing which drives away evil. And this is actually widespread outside the Near East too. Um, In Japan still today, sumo wrestling happens in a kind of ritual context and the wrestling ring is purified by throwing salt. In Western Europe too, there's a folklore tradition that you can protect yourself from evil spirits by throwing salt over your shoulder. So for all these reasons, for the people listening to Jesus, salt was both an everyday necessity and a commodity of great value with near magical abilities to prevent decay and maybe even drive away evil. But after Jesus calls the disciples the salt of the earth, he warns that if the salt loses its taste, it can't be made salty again. Does this even make sense? Can sop, sorry, salt stop tasting salty? I think there's two ways to see this. The first is that salt is salty by definition. It tastes like salt because it is salt. It can't be made more or less salty. It doesn't degrade over time. So if what you have is salt, then it's salty. If it's not salty, it's not salt. That said, I did some reading on this and it turns out that maybe, just maybe, their salt could get less salty because pure salt is always salty, but they likely didn't have pure salt. Whatever they gathered from the ocean, from the Dead Sea, or mined out of the earth was probably a mixture that contained salt but wasn't only salt. So we could speculate that maybe the stuff they called salt was actually a mixture of salt with other stuff. If it got wet, the salt could dissolve and leach out of the mixture, leaving you with a bag of stuff that you called salt, but without any actual salt in it. And of course, without access to pure salt, there was no way to restore the saltiness of that mixture, and you'd throw it out. So one way we look at this, Jesus would be speaking in an intentionally nonsensical way, asking how salt could stop being salty. This pushes us to see salt's nature and to question whether that's something whether something that's not salty could actually be salt. The other way we look at it, Jesus is pointing to the function and purpose of salt. Salt that is not salty cannot be used for a purpose that requires salt. We end up at a similar place, though its nature may in some way still be salt, it's not salt in any useful sense. So, you are the salt of the earth, unless you're not, or unless you're useless, which may be the same thing. Jesus goes right on to say, you are the light of the world. Again, we can think about why the nature of light is being a disciple, is like being a disciple of Jesus, but let's look at why light is a compelling image, and then how Jesus actually uses it. Like salt, light is both an everyday thing and kind of a magical thing. It doesn't behave like anything else in our everyday experience. There's a lot that can be said about the nature of light and what it might mean to be the light of the world, but what Jesus is going to highlight about light is its visibility. 
Light can be seen and allows other things to be seen too. The next thing he says is, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. He draws a parallel between light and a city on a hill, and the thing he points out about the city is that it's hard to hide a city on a hilltop. Obviously, a city on a hill is visible for miles around. Likewise, he refers to a lamp. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. A lamp under a basket isn't visible and is also pointless. Again, this pushes us to think about the nature and the purpose. A lit lamp under a basket is by nature still producing light, but it's been made useless. There's no situation in which you need light in a room that will be solved by lighting a lamp and then covering it up. There's light there, technically, but there may as well not be. So you put a lamp on a stand, setting it where it will spread light throughout the room, and then everyone in the house can see. Note, too, that here there's an association of influence, that light doesn't just exist for itself or just for the person who lit the lamp, but a lamp on a stand gives light to everyone who's nearby. So a couple things are common to these two images, like their combination of everyday necessity and otherworldly behavior. Jesus focuses, though, on their purpose, their action, and their nature. The nature of salt is it pulls water out of its surroundings. When the purpose you need fulfilled is food preservation, you can apply salt to the food and it acts according to its nature, accomplishing the purpose of preservation. The nature of light is that it's visible and makes other things visible. When you need to see something, you can light a lamp which produces light. Light acts on its nature, bouncing around the room and accomplishing the purpose of helping you see. And in both these, Jesus both acknowledges and kind of makes fun of a situation in which salt and light don't act like salt and light and don't serve any purpose. With that in mind, Jesus brings us to the point. Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Here it is. As he's spoken of the purpose, action, and nature of salt and light, he's going to do the same with his disciples. Their purpose, that God in heaven would be glorified by people. And the actions that accomplish this, good works, or we might say good deeds or doing the right thing. He doesn't speak explicitly to their nature, but if he speaks of salt and light as fulfilling their purpose through actions according to their nature and then uses the phrase in the same way, I think we're supposed to apply the same parallel here. Jesus' command to his disciples is to do good based on their nature in order to accomplish the glory of God. This can raise a number of challenges for us, both intellectually and practically. One that may jump out to you is this. What is this talk of people having a good nature? Don't we usually say that people have a sinful nature, one that cannot please God and is not good? How do we square this with Matthew 9.13 when Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous but sinners? Or the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18 that Jimmy told us last week when Jesus says that the one who went away from the temple justified wasn't the upstanding citizen, but rather the one whose prayer was, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
Or Romans 3, where Paul spells out the idea that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. One part of the answer to this lies in something Aldous told uh, told us in his sermon two weeks ago, introducing the Sermon on the Mount. It's this, that the Sermon on the Mount is not a front door to Christianity. At least that's not how it's presented in the text. The front door is found in Matthew 4.17, a little earlier, when Jesus begins preaching this message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The people that Jesus is addressing now are people who have repented. That is, they've turned away from their former lives and turned towards Jesus and his call and have begun to follow him. In this context, Jesus' words about salt and light point to the nature of his disciples, specifically as people whose nature is to do good and bring glory to God. And given that, yes, his disciples frequently are the sinners referenced in other passages, then this good nature seems to be something new to them. It's not that Jesus is picking the best people to follow him. It's that he seems to expect some kind of transformation to happen as they follow him. Now that they're following him, the Sermon on the Mount is going to tell them what a transformed disciple looks like. And another part of the answer to this question is just that these things are in tension with each other, not necessarily contradictory, but in tension. Followers of Jesus are transformed people, people who do good that wouldn't have been possible without Jesus' work in their lives. And also, followers of Jesus remain sinners, rebellious against God in at least some ways. If you want to dig into this topic, I recommend reading the book of Romans, just the whole thing. In that book, Paul really explores how we hold together the facts that we're new creations free from sin, and yet also we still sin. For today, it's going to have to suffice to say that it's clear that Jesus expects of us a transformed life, notably different from both the life we lived before becoming his disciples and from the lives of people around us. Now, this in itself may be the first thing about this passage that's challenging to you. When Jesus says, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works, that means that Jesus is assuming that you'll actually have good works to see. This may come as a surprise to some. As Protestants, we're sometimes guilty of talking about good works like they're totally, completely meaningless We do this because the writers of the Bible teach us that our salvation is by grace, not earned by anything we do. And many of us have cultural habits of thinking in meritocratic terms. That is, we think that you get good things by earning good things, by doing good things. So rightly, we push back on this idea that we could ever earn our salvation by our good works and emphasize that salvation is a gift freely given. But if we were to take that even farther to the idea that it doesn't matter at all whether you do the right thing, we would be in error. Some of you may have walked in the door this morning with this attitude. You may have been raised with the idea that if you just go to church or call yourself a Christian or don't commit any really egregious sins, then the rest of your conduct just doesn't really matter that much to God. 
I once heard someone describe the faith that they were raised in as, if you just trust in Jesus, he'll take care of you. And that's not untrue, but it's not very complete. Salt preserves food by its action, based on its nature. Light reveals a room by its action, based on its nature. Jimmy encouraged us last week that the Beatitudes are not only Beatitudes, they are do-attitudes. A person is not merciful who is only merciful in thought. A person is merciful when they have mercy on other people. A person is not meek who is meek only in thought, but is meek when they're humble and gentle in their actions. A person who intellectually assents to the value of peace or who feels like peace is good but then opens their mouth and stokes a quarrel is not a peacemaker. If you're a follower of Jesus, your very nature is being transformed by him. You reflect honor and glory to him when other people can see that transformation through your actions. Of course, the part about being seen to do good may be its own challenge. This is something I identify with. When I became a Christian, my conduct started to change. I came to the belief that my time was not my own, but rather belonged to God and was only being stewarded by me. And I started to use my time differently. I started working hard at school and being helpful around the house. My parents saw this, but mostly thought, oh good, he's finally growing up. That was totally reasonable. But when they said things like that, did I correct them and say, I'm not just growing up, I'm trying to live like my time belongs to God? Nope. Kept that to myself. Occasionally, I would do something kind brave, maybe very occasionally, or selfless, and someone would notice. And they'd ask, why are you doing this? Wow, what an opportunity to be God's witness and to share how his power has worked to redeem my sinful nature. You know what was really hard for me? Being honest and open about what motivated me. It was way easier less terrifying, to just give an answer that was vague or look for some common ground for a reason, something like, I just think the world is a better place when people are kind. That's true, but it's not really what's motivating my kindness. To this day, I find it challenging to be open about the fact that it's God's love, God's mercy, God's justice that motivate my best actions. So if there's anyone here like me who might be willing to do a good thing but gets a pit in their stomach if they have to explain it, let me encourage and challenge you. Jesus calls us to let our light shine so that our actions result in glory for God. Sometimes that requires that we open our mouths and say I did this as a response to the grace I've received from God. I did this because it's what Jesus asks of me. I had mercy because God has had mercy on me. 
course, this is a problem to face when you've done good and the people around you notice and appreciate it. And Jesus seems to think that there will be those times, but not always. Remember, the context of this verse is that he's just finished telling his disciples what a hard time they're in for. From verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. I'm sorry, I lost my place. And utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. You may be here today, sick and tired of letting your light shine. You may feel like your persecutors have seen your best and haven't given any glory to God. You may feel like no good deed goes unpunished. For your part, remember that our purpose is the glory of God, that we are called to shine our light, but it is ultimately God who works his own glory. The results are not on your shoulders. And for the rest of us in the room, this is a reminder that Jesus' call to shine your light is not just about being a witness to those who don't know him. It's also an encouragement to your brothers and sisters in Christ to share how Jesus is transforming you, to see how your good works reveal a heart that's following Christ inspires all of us to give God glory. Sometimes we're just as shy about the work of God in our lives when we talk after the church service as we are at our jobs or in our homes. So brothers and sisters, I leave you with this. With your eyes set on the purpose of God's glory, from your transformed nature as a follower of Jesus, act accordingly and pursue good works. Your nature is still being transformed and your actions won't always be good works. But your purpose remains the same. We're going to take communion now in which we commemorate and participate in the Last Supper, when Jesus sat down with his closest disciples at the very end of his ministry before he was arrested and crucified. Talk about good works. He had mercy on us. He was meek for us. He made peace for us. He established righteousness for us. He didn't hide his light. And communion continues to point us to God's great love and mercy so that we're reminded to give him glory. Communion is a sign of being a disciple. If you're a follower of Jesus, come on up. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, we're glad you're here. Thank you for coming. We ask that you stay in your seat during this time and take the opportunity to think about what you've heard and pray. If being salt and light sounds good to you today, if you want in on being a disciple of Jesus who gets transformed, to bring glory to God, you can tell him that right now and come take communion. And then find someone to talk to. I'll be in the back during communion and up front here, and I would love to talk. At the end of the Last Supper, Jesus picked up the bread and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Take it and eat it.
And he picked up the wine and he said, this is my blood shed for you. Take it and drink it. In that, he gives us a reminder, a concrete reminder for the rest of time of his works that he's done for us. I'm going to pray. Thanks, God, for your word, your mercy, and your goodness. Thank you for all the times that you do empower us to do good, to see you and know you. God, I pray for each of us that we will have an opportunity today or this week to do good and to be your witness as to why we do good. Will you give us strength to not grow weary and not be silent, but to be your faithful witnesses? Thanks, Lord. Amen.